You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. All right. Well, it is... uh... Time for Redemption Kids. I think we do have some kids are sticking around this morning. So if that's you, do not leave right now. <laughs> okay, uh, there is no class for you. I think there's a few that are in that category right now. So uh, everyone could find their class. And um, again, just a welcome to those who be joining us online today. And uh, uh, if you are, are joining us online, we'd love to. Uh, hear from you. Just let us know that you're joining us uh, by indicating uh, so on the platform you're using. Well, with those sounds of joy, we, uh, we are covering Romans 13 today, all right? Um, and and uh, it's interesting getting to Romans 13 after having studied the first 12 chapters of Romans. So thankful that we have studied the first uh, 12 chapters of Romans as we Uh, get into the text today. Uh, Romans 13 has become the new John 3.16, right? It's a text that everyone uh, is quoting over the last couple years, a text that everyone is referring to, and and a text um, that that has seemingly been a a divisive text over the last couple years um, as churches that typically have been like-minded, have not been like-minded in their interpretation of the text. And so we've kind of been left in this place, well, what, what does it say, and what is right, and what is wrong? And, and uh, I want us just to kind of set the, the stage uh, for Romans 13 to remind us of context. There's some, there's some elements, as we look at the text today, I want us to kind of do what we did uh, there's not many of you here that were here for this, but there was some of you who were here. We did a, we did a series called uh, Butchering the Bible, and um, it, was a, it, was this, it was text that we tend to quote from the Bible, but we have, we're doing it wrongly. And so we called it the Butchering the Bible series and did it hermeneutically. And I was like, okay, here's, here's what everyone says that text means, i.e., I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, really? Can you fly? Like, there's some things that, so what does that mean? What is Philippians 4.13? And so we would take the context and then say, okay, now this is based on context, based on all these other things, this is what the text actually means. So um, so we're going to do similar with our approach to Romans 13. Context means everything, right? You can make the Bible say pretty much anything you want it to say if you just pull a verse out of context. And unfortunately, there's a lot of cults out there, a lot of churches doing that. Uh, I met even a guy on my taxi ride at 3.30 in the morning uh, to go down to Texas last week who had been a part of a church that uh, was telling him that uh, marrying someone not of the same race as you is sinful. And, and I said, that's really good that you don't go to that church anymore. Uh, so, uh, because that's not what the Bible says. And you can pull a verse from here or there and say, oh, see, that's what it means. It's not what it means. So anyway, but so we can do that, and I think Romans 13 can be like that, and so we want to just take a step back, remind ourselves of Romans 12, which comes before Romans 13, Romans 12, which has been teaching us 
our proper response to the first 11 chapters of the gospel, right? Like the 11 chapters of Romans, there was like, this is the gospel. This is how God has saved us. And then Romans 12, 1, and so then live like this. And Romans 13 falls under the category of live like this. What is it that is good? What is it that is acceptable, which is perfect? This is what we're trying to discover as we seek to be living sacrifices for the Lord. What is the will of God in regards to our lives now that he has purchased our salvation? What is it that he requires of us? And as we went through chapter 12, there's a whole lot about love, right? Of three through eight, this is how you are to function in the church. This is how God's gifted you. You should be other-centered. You should be serving one another. And then 9 through 21 has been a fire hose of this is what genuine love looks like. Uh, Romans chapter 12 has 40 commands. Did you feel that as we were going through there? Like, it's like, do this, do this, do this, do this. This is how we are to live in light of the gospel, in in light of what Christ has done for us. This is how we're to love one another within the body of Christ. And then last week, this is how we're to love our enemies. This is how we're to be at peace with all men as much as it depends on us. This is how we should respond to wickedness against us. This is how we ended Romans chapter 12, where it says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then there's the next verse. So so let's remember the context there. And then... Look ahead, Romans 13, verse 8, again talks about owing nothing to anyone except for love. This whole context is love. So Romans 13, 1 through 7, if we don't know anything else about Romans 13, 1 through 7, what we should be thinking is that it has something to do with genuine love. All right? When we think about the government, I know that's the first thing that comes to your mind, genuine love. Is that correct? And I want to I wanna just state right up front, I, I, I was joking with the worship team, there's many ways I don't want to preach this sermon. I, 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 as I look at my 50 years on this earth, not great in walking in obedience to what Romans 13 has to say. My, I... <laughs> Here we go, victim culture. You know, my growing up in Canada has not been great for me walking in obedience for Romans 13. I have an attitude towards the government, which I should not have. I have a mindset towards the government I should not have. My actions often are not what they should be. I, I mean, as I look through this, I'm like, man, this is not good. So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this week, and we're going to take next week to talk about Romans 13, 1 through 7. Because I think we need a course reset in regards to what we think about government as Christians. We're not going to deal with all the tangents that you probably talked about at small group this week, okay? What we are going to talk about is what does the text say in Romans 13? What do we know for sure? What does it say? Are we doing it? Is this our heart? Do we want to walk in obedience to it? And then next week, 
will deal with all your rabbit trails, okay? By looking at Genesis through Revelation. So that's kind of the core set we're going to be looking at. But, but can I just say this? As we think about this week and next week, whatever we think about in regards to government, whatever we think about other brothers and sisters in regards to our thinking about this, if we can't hashtag what we've just said with genuine love, then we've missed it. All right? So that's... Anyone feel like we desperately need the Lord at this point as we think about looking at the text? So that's how I feel. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at the text this morning. Lord God, we're so thankful for this time together this morning. God, it is humbling to look at your word, to see what it says, and then to look at our own lives and see how often we don't do what we ought to do. And God, as I've already confessed this morning, I, I feel that in regards to this, this, these particular verses in particular, I, I, I often respond in the flesh, God. I often respond in what comes natural to me, and I, I often don't care what your word has to say in regards to the government. God, I pray for conviction for myself. I pray for conviction for our church family this morning. God, help us to not be a kind of people who pick and choose what we want to be obedient in. God, we want to be salt and light for your namesake. God, we want to be faithful in all that you've called us to. And so, Lord, as we understand what your word says, we know that our hearts are deceitful above all else. And so we're asking this morning what it says in Psalm 139, Lord, would you search us and try us? Would you see if there be any sinful way in us? And if there is, God, would you find us quick to repent, quick to embrace what your word says for your glory and for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at Romans 13, 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and slip up your hand this morning. Uh, We want to know what the scriptures have to say, not what Trevor Peacock has to say, not what... Redemption Church has to say, what does the Bible say about church and government? Now, going back to the Butchering the Bible series, one of the things is we want to understand a, uh, the text well is not just to understand the context of which the scripture is in, but also what is the historical background to the writing of the text? What was going on in Paul's day for him to write this? What was going on in Rome? I think if we're being honest, sometimes we're like, well, yeah, sure, Peter wrote these things, Paul wrote these things, but they never seen a government like our government. No, their government was far worse. So let's start with that. I'm going to rely mainly uh, on Boa. Boa is a commentator, and he, he just wrote kind of a succinct way of like looking at it from Christ's birth to Uh, And I added in to the last thing we hear from John. So you're looking at basically the first century. What was going on in the government at that time? Jesus comes on the earth, and we see right off the bat that there is a very friendly government towards the Jewish people. Is that correct? No, that's not correct. There's this guy by the name of Herod, Herod the Great, he was known as. 
He hears about Jesus, and he is immediately threatened by this one who is the Messiah, uh, legitimately so in many ways, I guess, to be threatened by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. However, his way of dealing with this situation was that everyone in Bethlehem in the vicinity, two years old and younger, should be killed. All male children were killed in that area. That was Herod the Great. Three decades later, there's a guy that we learn about, Herod's son, Herod Antipas, in, in many ways, seemed really uh, friendly towards religious things. We, we find out in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, that Herod feared John the Baptist, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe, but then he had a birthday party. And at the birthday party, his, well, not really daughter-in-law, but kind of daughter-in-law, uh, decides that a uh, great birthday present would be the head of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is killed at that moment. Coming on the scene after Jesus' life on this earth, uh, there is a guy by the name of Caliglia, and I'm probably going to, like, if you're a historian, forgive me, okay? I'm just going to butcher their names, but hopefully you can figure out who I'm talking about. Caligula, he, uh, was, he reigned from 37 to 41 AD. His reign began just a few years after the resurrection of Christ and the founding of his church. Um, through, sorry, uh, his reign became, yeah, th- and though there were undoubtedly already some Christians resident in Rome, there's little evidence for persecution of believers during that time. The Christian sect would have appeared to the Roman officials as little more than a disruptive branch of Judaism. And while the Roman Empire was a whole, as a whole was tolerant of Judaism, Caligula on one occasion commanded Petronius, a governor of Syria, to place a statue of Caligula in the temple at Jerusalem for purposes of adoration. The Druze in Jerusalem were so strident in their opposition that Caligula withdrew the command, fearing an uprising. Just because the Caligula was tolerant of Christians and Jews, however, does not mean that the emperor was to be loved. Caligula and Tiberius uh, Gemellus were first appointed joint emperors. The Senate and people later joined Caligula as a sole ruler. One of his first acts was to have Gamelius murdered. Following a calm initial six months in office, Caligula suffered a severe illness after which he was reported to go insane. He reported, sorry, he murdered most of his relatives, had people tortured and killed while he ate, named his favorite horse as a counselor, declared himself as a god, and had temples and sacrifices dedicated to himself. This was his reign from 37 to 41. He was then assassinated, not surprisingly, by the officers of his guard. After him was Claudius I. He was the uncle of Caligula. He reigned from 41 to 54. He delegated most of his responsibilities to his wife, whom he later murdered in 48 AD. He then married his niece, Agrippina the Younger, who was responsible for poisoning Claudius. Though Claudius uh, treated the Jews in Rome with indulgence, he banished them uh, from Rome midway through his reign because of the disturbances related to this guy named as Crestus, which historians look back and say, well, it's probably was everything to do with Jesus coming on the scene and the Jews getting all fired up. 
And so then they were banished from Rome during his reign. After Claudius' death, there was this guy by the name of Nero. Anybody think he was a good guy? He reigned from 54 to 68 AD. He is the one whom Peter and Paul are martyred through in his reign. He burns Rome down in 64 AD, blames it on the Christians, and then there's this massive persecution of the Christians. He... um, he started as, at 15. At age 22, he had his mother murdered. Followed three la- years later, follow, uh, sorry, followed three years later by the divorce and later murder of his wife. Um, again, not a great guy. All right, that's Nero. And then, lastly, uh, just picking up John, who is still alive in the late 90s, mid 90s. There's a guy by the name of Domitian. He's an emperor. In during one of his campaigns of persecution against the church. He has John banished to the island of Patmos, which is where we see um, the book of Revelation written. That was their government. So that, that, that's Genesis, or sorry, Matthew through Revelation. That's the government they're under. Let's just remember that and remember really the strikingly silence when it comes to opposing the government. I just think that's a good start as we think about it. Now, Trudeau maybe doesn't look quite as bad after reading about those guys, okay? I think I just, I want to just kind of set the table a little bit. And I know every, I look at you and I'm like, oh, but, but can you just lay the butts down, okay, until we're done, okay, and then we can go from there. But <laughs> let's just remember that was their government. Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so as we look at the text, we see God's will for the Christian regarding government. First, we see the plan. We see this in verse 1. It begins by saying, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. What does it mean to be subject to the governing authorities? The, the word here is hupotasomai. Hupotasomai. It is to submit to the orders or directives of someone. It is to obey. It is to submit to. 
It is obedience and submission together. This idea of submission is not simply found in regards to citizens and the government. It is found throughout the Bible. We think about the different ways that God calls people to submit. We see children are to submit to their parents. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Employees in the Bible, slaves to their masters, to their employers. And so to citizens are to submit to the government. Now, let's just state the obvious right at the get-go here. It is not natural for any of us to submit ourselves to anyone. Like, kids don't wake up and say, I cannot wait to submit to mom and dad today. This is going to be a grand day, right? Like, that's not in right from the earliest of our days right through till the time where we will see the Lord face to face we need to understand our sinful inclination to rebel against those whom the Lord has put in authority over us even in the church there are elders who are placed over the church and the the people in the church are to submit to the elders and and all of these different orderings that God has placed over us there is this tendency in us to grumble and complain or rebel rather than submit. So we need to at least be honest with ourselves right from the get-go that if I'm left to myself, this is probably, I'm going to lean towards not doing this. And if you doubt that, just look at the trend even in our churches today to take what the Bible says and like, Yes, it says submit there, but not doesn't really mean that. Now, let's reason that away in, in so many different ways. Now, <clears throat> I understand that. I also am human. I also have the inclination in me not to want to submit. But if we are to be faithful to what the Lord God has called us to, then we must do what he tells us to. So, Let's just get that out of the way. Maybe, so you listen to me for the rest of the sermon, there are times when that earthly authority over you will ask you to do something that you cannot do. When is that? It is when it is in direct contradiction to what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords tells you to do. So a husband, a parent, the government tells you to do something that you cannot do because then it's in contradiction to what God would have you to do, then you don't do that thing. You do not submit. Same in the light if they prevent you from doing something that you should be doing, then you would not submit. However, as we go through this, that doesn't mean you do it angrily. It doesn't mean you do it with shaking fists. You do it in respect. And we're going to see that as we go through this. So, note, who is this for? Let every, what is that again? What's the exception clause? Oh, just if you're not a person, okay? Okay. If you're not a person, you do not need to apply this. Now, what's interesting is that what Paul is saying here is all believers are called to do this, but 
really every person on earth should submit to the government. It's God's created order for this earth. It is something that he uses for the betterment of society. Then he says this, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The reason that we are given to submit to the governing authorities is that there is no authority given, now think about this, all over the earth, even today, there is no authority given over man but that which God has placed over them. It does not exist apart from his will and his determination. We believe that God is sovereign. So that when I submit to the government, ultimately then I'm submitting to God. No different than what we see in Ephesians 5 when it talks about wives submitting to husbands. They do it as unto the Lord. They don't do it for their husbands. They do it in service to Christ. So it is our submission to the government. He is the one who sets up and tears down governments. In the book of Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar being removed from the throne and power because of his refusal to recognize that it is the Lord who is in control, right? For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was eating grass. Why? Because of what it says in Daniel 4.25, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. It is he who sets up governments. As we look at the Old Testament, we see many examples of this being the case. In a positive way, we see Joseph being taken from like obscurity in this Jewish growing up, you know, well, well, they didn't even have their own land yet, right? This Jewish family, this, this family whom God will make into a nation. He takes one of those sons who was dearly loved by his brothers and is that true, kids that are in here? No, that's not true. They, the, brother, the brothers did not love him. But God had a plan for him, and he becomes second in command in the most powerful nation in the world. God places him there. When it comes to God's people and setting up a king, he chooses the most unlikely of men, this little shepherd boy by the name of David, right? And that, that nobody, like even his own family, doesn't have him come to see who might be chosen as king, right? Like, you know, bring all your sons and we'll see whom God is calling to be son. He's not even there, okay? So God can place people in government the way he wants. And as you read the Old Testament, you can see that God sets up governments and tears down governments. If they're being wicked, he gives them amount of time and then boom, they're gone, right? We see this happen over and over again. We see his sovereignty in these ways. It's really important that we think that about that when we think about 2022. Is there any government in place right now that God has not allowed to be in government? Now, does this mean that they can do carte blanche to do whatever they want? No, they will give an account of themselves before the Lord someday for what they have done. Every single government will give an account because they've been given that authority to, to uh, God has given that authority to them. But they're there right now because God has placed them there right now. And that doesn't mean they'll be there forever, but they're there now because God has placed them there. Schreiner puts it like this, no political power is attained apart from the sovereign will of God. So whether that be authoritarian governments, 
Our kids are just finishing up high school. Gabs is in grade 12. We've, we've done social studies 30. Okay, so I've learned about all the different kinds of government out there. Did you know that there's uh, democracies, dictatorships, monarchies, con communism, socialism, theocracies, oligarchies? <laughs> like some of these I've never heard of. I hadn't heard of either. Okay, but there's all these different kinds of governments out there. I know it may be shocking, not every society is a democracy. Do we understand that, can Canadians? But here's what we know for sure. Whoever is in power right now, God has allowed that person to be in power. That's what we know for sure. And then, crazily enough, God calls his people to submit to those people. That's what we see in verse 1. That's the plan. Second, we see the purpose. We see the purpose. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Right? God is the one who sets up the authority, and if you resist that authority, then you are, he's saying basically you're resisting God. This word for resist, deeply convicting. It is to oppose someone involving not only a psychological attitude, but also a corresponding behavior. It is to, uh, to be opposed, it is to be hostile towards. So not just in my actions, but in my thoughts, in my attitude towards a government. If I'm opposing it, if I'm resisting it, then I am going against what God has called me to. One verse, not many words there, but three times he says, do not resist. And if you're like me, I get to the end of that verse, and I'm like, okay, so you're saying we should probably resist. <laughs> Why does he have to say it so many times? Because you and I are not inclined to submit. We are inclined to resist. If we're being honest, that's our default. But he's saying here, listen. I'm the one who set up the government. I'm the one who placed it over you. And what I'm calling you to do is submit to it. Moose says this. It denotes the attitude of one who will not admit the government has a legitimate right to exercise authority over him or her. Those who take up this attitude, it says, will bring judgment upon themselves. Again, governments will give an account of themselves for how they have ruled. When they commit evil and use their authority wickedly, God will hold them accountable. But they have been given this authority by the Lord. Even, even the account which Graham read earlier, right? Pilate, you've been given the authority by the Lord. You would not have any authority unless it had been given to you by the Lord. Because Pilate's like, well, wait a minute, don't you know I have the authority? Well, the reason you have the authority is because God gave it to you. Let's keep that clear. So, let's think about this, practically speaking. Is it easy to submit to the authorities over us? When laws are implemented that we do not agree with, we think what? We should not have to obey. Some of you are old enough to remember the seatbelt law. I remember everybody losing their minds over the seatbelt law, right? This is tyranny. How can they make us wear seatbelts? 
You know, like as a kid, it was like, I love jumping around in the vehicle the entire time in this metal box hurtling down the highway, right? It's going to make our trips seem so much longer. This is wrong. And, and there's all kinds of this pushback, Christians and non-Christians. And that's in our nature to push back. We have all kinds of opinions. I like what Boa has to say here. He says, if an earthquake destroys our town or a disease ravages our body, or a deranged person violates our personal or property rights, we, rent, we rest in the sovereignty of God more easily than when we get a 20-something police officer pulling us over for rolling through a stop sign. We look both ways. We slowed almost completely to a stop. We have a reasonable, good driving record. We were under the influence of nothing, and yet we still got a ticket, right? We don't want to submit in those situations. We want to resist, we want to oppose, and, and this is generally speaking, hopefully, this is your primary way of dealing with the governing authorities, would be traffic violations, right? But I don't know that many of us, our first reaction is like, guilty. All right. Thanks, officer. Yes, officer. That, you're right. You're right, officer. Like that, is that our reaction? Should be, should be respectful, honoring. Anybody else want to be a police officer? We have a few of them in our church. <laughs> okay, I see that hand. That's great. All right, James Hardy, where are you? Let's start recruiting these guys. Um, we ought to not resist. That's what it's saying in the Bible. Don't resist. Don't resist the, the governing authorities over us, whether that be a police or our politicians. And then it says this, those who resist will incur judgment. Now, I, I think ultimately it could be eschatological where, where God, when we stand before him, we will all of us give an account of how we have walked in obedience to these commands, but, but also there will be, will incur judgment from the government. We see here in verse three, for rulers... For, in other words, why did I just say what I said? For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, to, but, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's really interesting, and I don't know that I've ever really thought about this before, but government is good. It's a God-given institution. It provides order on this earth. I mean, just, just watch a country for like three seconds without any governing authority. Does it go well? Everybody treats everyone super kind. That's what happens when we don't have any governing authority over us. Is that our default in humanity? It's not. So govern, governance is good. Marriage is good. Another, another institution that God has given us is marriage. And when marriage and governments act the way that they should be, it is great for society. Governments break down and don't act the way that they should be. You, let's just be honest, you have every third world country in the world today. Why do we have third world countries? Because of corrupt governments, 90 some percent of the time, that's why. 
In a world like ours, where, where billions of dollars are sent into countries because of nations like ours, and yet they still remain a third world country, why is that? Corruption. Government's not acting the way they ought to, but governance is for our good. And so God is saying, when I place authority over you, you are to submit to them. The governance does things like this. Somebody murders someone, there are consequences. It was, I was, it's, you want to you be fascinated, look, just look up different punishments around the world for different crimes. China, basically do anything death penalty. Like, for real. Like, I was looking at it. It's like, pretty much anything, it's, that's just, we just go to the death penalty. Here, not so much. Some, some nations, you do something, like, you're a thief, they cut off a limb. Cut off your hand. There's consequences for evil doing. And that's from the, that's from the Lord. It's his, it's his way of punishing evil on this earth. We think about back to a few verses back in, in, in chapter 12. We're told not to get wrath on our own. That's for the Lord to do. And one of the ways he does that is through the government. And so we commit a crime of some kind, and the, God uses the government to hold that intact. And as you think about our globe right now, that over, overall... There is varying degrees of effectiveness in this and justice in this, but most countries do this. They still punish evildoers. It says to bear the sword, they do not bear the sword for nothing. What does it mean to bear the sword? Death penalty, right? You kill someone, then the just thing would be eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's that's what this is talking about. It's in the government's hands to do so. And it says that it's the government's job to punish evildoers, and it's their job to reward those who do good. And as believers, we should be the kind of people who are doing good. We should be known to, for our goodness in our society. We should be known for for making our society better, not making it worse. That should be our reputation. And, and as you look through the New Testament, even like when Paul is on trial with Festus and Felix, they're like, yeah, we really, there's nothing this guy's done wrong. I mean, that was their conclusion. If we're kind of like, you know what, I don't really like Paul, uh, as I've thought about it, I really don't like his writings, let's go to First Peter 2, because he says exactly the same thing. First Peter 2, 13 through 18, it's like, 13 through 17, is like the parallel to these verses. Everything that, that Paul is saying here, Peter has said there. The job of the government is to promote and reward good and restrain and punish evil. So the believer is to do good and not evil. Stein rightly says this, governments, even oppressive governments, by their very nature, seek to prevent the evils of indiscriminate murder, riot, thievery, as well as general instability and chaos. And good acts do at times meet with its approval and praise. I mean, that's just the general principle when we think about government. Therefore, verse 5, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Right? 
If you don't want to continually be glancing in your rearview mirror, stop speeding. Right? If you, <laughs> like that, that was just this kind of a clear thing, right? And when he talks about being, uh, so not, not just worrying about this, the punishment that you might get for doing the wrong, but also for the sake of your conscience, which means you understand as a believer, God has placed these people over you. That it is his will that you would walk in obedience to them in every way that you can. That you would be respectful to them. And so, when I do that, I don't have to worry about a conscience that has been affected. Hebert says this, under ordinary circumstances, believers should actively support civil government in its promotion of law and order. You know what, I think a great picture of this is in, found in Jeremiah 29.7. Jeremiah 29.7. I would just jot this verse down. But just think about the context. This is Israel. They've been ripped out of their land by a wicked, evil nation, Babylon. The Babylonians, you, you want to talk about atrocities against humanity. They, they were at the top of the list. But as they are exiled to Babylon, this is what the Lord tells them to do. 29.7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare you will find, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Look, go there, obey its government, and pray for that nation. Seek its betterment. As Canadians, that's what we should be doing. We should be praying for our government. We should be praying Against evil, we can pray against evil. Is that okay as believers? That we would say, God, God, please stop all these abortions in this land. God, please stop the sex trade in this land. God, please stop the euthanasia in this land. We, we can pray for those things. And we'll, as we'll look at it next week, we can have influence as believers in these things. But it when it comes to your obedience and your respect to the government, that's not a negotiable. The only time we don't do those things is when we're being asked to do something that the Bible clearly says we're not supposed to do. Kenyon says this, submissiveness has, has always betrayed the spirit of Christ in his people. Rebellion has never portrayed, produced any response from God other than judgment. Submissiveness. It always betrays the Spirit of God. Rebellion has never produced any response from God other than judgment, right? So let us keep that in mind as we, as we think about His purpose in these things. And then lastly, let us look at the practice. What does this look like on an everyday basis? Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God attending to this very thing. He's giving us some very specific application about everybody's favorite topic, taxes. Did you know that they were not invented by the Canadian government? That taxes have been around, even if you go back to Genesis, you can see that taxes are being talked about as far back as Genesis. They've been around for a long, long time. And God calls us to pay taxes. Why? Now, this is really fascinating. We're to pay taxes for the authorities, our ministers of God. Like, really interesting language here. 
God has placed them over you, in other words. And so, in order for them to operate and to serve your country, they will need money. And so you are to pay taxes. Moose says this, the payment of taxes becomes a responsibility that Christians owe to God himself. We pay taxes, why? Because ultimately God has placed them over us, and so we are to pay what we owe. This is how he puts it in verse 7. Pay to, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So pay up. What do you owe? It's interesting here. The first word for taxes, it was something that all citizens who were not Roman citizens had to pay. Now remember, the government at this time, they, the Roman Empire, they ruled over many, many nations, which Israel obviously was one of them. And many people in that land were not Roman citizens. They were just under this Roman Empire. And so they were, they, those citizens were called to pay taxes. This would have involved uh, things like property taxes, poll taxes, pay those things. Revenue, this describes a kind of tax that was more of an indirect form of tax. Things like sales tax and tolls would fit into this category. Even Roman citizens would pay for this kind of tax. So basically, Paul is saying here, look, I'm writing to Rome. I understand some of you are Roman citizens, some of you are not Roman citizens. Just pay what you owe. Whatever is required of you, pay it. Jesus, when he's on this earth, he taught what? Pay your taxes. Pay to Caesars what is Caesars. That's, that's the general principle. Now, I'm not sure about you. I haven't really particularly struggled with this area. I may not like it. You know what I mean? I'm not like, I'm not like yeah, I get to pay more taxes. Like that, I'm not, I don't think I'm ever excited about it, but I've never been like, I'm not doing it anymore. Do you know what this wicked government's doing with this money? Like, I've never, I've never thought that way. I mean, I understand the context here. Paul's telling these people to pay to a government that was wicked at that time. I've never wrestled with that, but I have wrestled mightily with the rest of this sentence, which says what? Respect to whom respect is owed. That's what I'm supposed to pay. Honor to whom honor is owed. The word for respect here is no different than the word for respect of wives to their husbands we find in Ephesians chapter 5. This is the kind of respect we're supposed to have for our government. How are you doing on that one? With police officers, if I've got, if I've got a scale of how I'm doing with honoring and respecting, I, I do a lot better with police officers than I do with politicians. I understand with police officers, they have a very, very hard job. They, especially today to try to continue to maintain law and order as is in our constitution and, and, and you're always the bad guy showing up, <laughs> right? Like this very rarely when it's like, yay, the police are here. Like that, that doesn't happen very often in our lives. And so I don't have as much problem with, with police officers respecting and honoring as, as I do politicians. I, I don't know that that has ever been my first thought when I think about politicians. Honor, respect. 
and I, and I, and I, I'd like it to be different. You know, I'm like, okay, but, but within the Greek, is there something different here that I'm not seeing? Like, you know, like, no, there's not. And, and, and can I say in my conversations with you that I have been respectful and honoring to Prime Minister Trudeau, to Premier Kenny, to our mayors? Is that my heart, that I'm, that I'm respectful and honoring? That's what the Bible calls me to pay. And I know that there's some of you wanting to do some eisegesis here. Only, it says, only if it's owed. And I know my politician, there is no honor owed to him. I'll tell you what. I mean, that's, our, that's what we want to think. That's what everybody wants to think. But it's wrong. It's just wrong. And we have to, we have to pay respect. And when we, as we're going to get into the weeds next week on the implications and applications of all of this, when Christians have taken a stand and said, I need to disobey the ones who have been faithful to what God's word over and over again, again, they've done it respectfully. They've disobeyed, but they've done it respectfully. They've done it honoring. They've not done it in a hateful way. They've not done it in a, in a belligerent way. They've done it in a very respectful way. So we see God's plan. We see his purpose. We see his, how we're to practice honoring the government. Not real difficult to understand. Do you agree? It's like, okay. Uh, so where does the problem come in? That's what we want to think about for just a minute. I'm just going to wade into the problem, and then we're going to look at the problem more fully next week. This text is not complicated, really easy to understand, but the problem comes in, in the application, in the implications, in understanding at what point do I say I can no longer obey the government? What is the line where I can no longer do that? As we read through the Bible next week, as we're going to look at different things, we're going to see that there are times where we are to disobey. What are those times? What, what, does those, what will those examples look like? But the one thing I want, I want us to just sit and soak in for this week is can I honestly say that I've been walking in obedience to Romans 13? Can I honestly say that it's my heart to submit? That it's my heart to not resist. That it's my heart to pray for my leadership. That it's my heart to honor and respect. Is that my heart? That needs to be the baseline. Before I start running after the exemptions. Because we, we want to get there quick, don't we? Whew! That was startling, okay? We want to get there quick. We want to get there quick. We want to, we want to like, yeah, 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 but, 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 however, but, but, but. Okay, well, we'll look at some of that. But be honest before the Lord this morning and say, but 
Do I have the right heart? Moose says this, government is more than, a nuisance, more than a nuisance to be put up with. It is an institution established by God to accomplish some of his purposes on earth. Could it be that you and I need to be transformed into our, in our thinking on government? That we have been clearly too conformed to the pattern of this world? The fact that this text is so simple and that neither Peter nor Paul took time to show you all the out clauses of when you're to disobey is to show us that this should be our heart, to show us that this should be our default, is to walk in submission. What are we going to look at next week? Is it our job to resist the government? Some say it is. Some say it is our job to resist the government. Some say it's the, our, our role as believers. So we're going to look at this more next week. But based on Romans 13, could you say so? Based on 1 Peter 2, could you say so? Based on how Jesus lived in the apostles in the midst of a wicked Roman empire, could we say so? When, when we must obey God rather than men, how is it to be done? What does the scripture tell us about that? Is it to be done in anger or rebellion or with respectful disobedience? How should we treat fellow believers who might disagree with you and I on where the line of disobedience is? We're going to talk about that next week. In light of the scriptures, what should our expectations of government be? And then lastly, there are some things that we'll, sorry, sorry, and then lastly, we'll be looking at again, what is it? that is the good, the, will, the perfect, and good, acceptable, and perfect will of God when it comes to the way that we would walk in regards to government. These are some of the things we'll be talking about next week. I'll, I'll see what happens this next week. They're trying to just boil this down into like, I don't know, what was it, an hour? I don't know how long we've been up here. It's, there's so much to say, obviously. But what I'm praying for is that we would be humble before the Lord, and that we would want what he wants more than what we would want. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much for this time together this morning. Lord, we do pray, Lord, that you would lead us, that you would guide us. Lord, again, as I, as I think about this text, I know that I, I've, I've sinned. There's no way around it. Uh, I have not always been respectful. I've not been honoring um, I've not paid what I've, what I've owed. And so, God, I want to start with that even this morning. I do pray for Prime Minister Trudeau. God, first and foremost, I would pray for his salvation. God, I, I see him as a man apart from you, walking in wickedness. And God, we, um, we pray that you would grant him repentance that he would come to faith in you. God, we, we pray for Premier Kenny as well as he governs over us in the, our province of Alberta. And God, again, God, we pray that, that he would look to you first and foremost and that, God, you would, you would save these men, that you would save our politicians. God, we, we know that apart from you, they are lost. And then, God, we would pray for wisdom. 
we would pray that you would help us to, to be humble, that, Lord, you would help us to be submissive where we're to be submissive, and that, God, when we're not called to be submissive, that, Lord, you would help us to do so in a way that would bring honor and glory to you. Lord, as we would look at some of these things next week, we do pray that, Lord, you would just continue to lead us, to guide us. Lord, that we would be men and women of your word and not men and women who just simply seek what we want. Lord, for your glory and for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.